Now then, ready for the Bible? You may feel differently by the time this is over. I don't want you to open your Bibles this morning specifically for a very specific reason. I want you to look in the bulletin and refer today to the passage of the Bible that I've printed inside the bulletin. The reason for that is, as we read this very short passage, you're soon going to realize what a difficult passage this is. One scholar, a Lucan scholar, in other words, a Greek New Testament scholar who specializes in the writings of Luke. Luke wrote us two books, the book of Luke and the book of Acts calls this passage in one phrase in it a minefield in this kind of scholarship, in this kind of study. I can't begin to say everything that I'd like to about this passage. In fact, I took some things out of my message just this morning. But as you read it, the first couple of verses are simple and very understandable. After that, it becomes so historical and so Jewish because Jesus is speaking as a Jew to Jews in the first century that you're going to very quickly lose touch with anything you're familiar with. And Jesus is going to talk about the law and the prophets. That's a shorthand way in His time of referring to the Old Testament. The writings and the teaching of Moses and all the prophets that followed him, and it even includes, it's just a a shorthand, it's slang for all of the Old Testament Scriptures, all of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's been really a minefield and a source of confusion from the time of the apostles forward. Once Jesus has come, how do we relate to the Old Testament? It's a very understandable confusion, very understandable difficulty, and in the book of Acts, you'll actually watch the first Jewish Christians work their way through it, and they're actually going to have a big meeting in Acts chapter 15, which Bible students call the Jerusalem Council, with this big question of all the things that Moses taught us that we've been raised with, that we've brought into our hearts and used to shape our whole lives, how much of this is required from the Gentiles? understandable controversy. In Exodus 19, God made a covenant with Israel, and He says, if you will accept my covenant and keep my commandments, you'll be a special people to me. You'll be, I own the whole earth, but you will be special among the, uh, special among the nations, and you'll be a kingdom of priests. In other words, you'll be royal because you'll belong to me and you'll be relation, in relationship with me, but you'll also function as priests. In other words, as a whole country to represent me to the nations. Some people think that God's mission, in other words, God reaching out to people, started in the New Testament when Jesus told us to go make disciples of all nations. It's not true. It's just the methodology changed. In the Old Testament, what God intended through the law and the prophets and everything He commanded Israel was to make a nation so separate, so different, so apart from all of the pagan nations, the wicked nations around them, that they would shine quite brightly in a dark world, that they would draw people to God. What changed is not God's plan. What changed is God's methodology. In the Old Testament, we see when Israel is behaving, we see the nations coming 
to God in Israel. Anybody read enough of the Old Testament to know instances where that's happening? But Israel behaved so poorly, behaved famously so much like the nations around them that they were hardly ever any, anything different from the nations, and they hardly ever drew anybody to him. Well, that was the intention of the law, to make Israel separate and holy, to show by all of their behavior, which went right down to the way they dressed and the way they ate, everything about them. The law had three parts, Bible scholars say. There's a moral part, which you'll remember as the Ten Commandments, one of its examples. There was also the civic law. In other words, just as we do in the United States, what are the civil rules to govern us as a country? And then there was a ceremonial law, which had everything to do with how God was going to be worshipped. And one of the criticisms that Jesus always faced was that He was a lawbreaker, that he was so different from the Pharisees and the scribes, in other words, the religious experts of his time, that he had come to destroy the law or set it aside or wipe it out. Jesus was criticized in every single way a person can be. And years ago, a California pastor wrote a book that was pretty popular for a little while called They Love, Je they Love Jesus, Not the Church. When you read in Luke 16, I'm not sure that's always true, because when people listen carefully to Jesus, His claims are so authoritative, so radical, so impossible actually to obey fully, that if you're paying attention, He'll shock you. Let me show you what I mean, Luke 16. And I'm going to deal with the difficulty of this passage by doing my best to be as clear and also as concise as I possibly can. Look 16 on your sheet. Do you have that? The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. Hmm. What's that about? Well, Last Sunday, this is one of the challenges of being a pastor who teaches straight through books of the Bible. You don't, get to cherry, you don't get to cherry pick and pick your spots. If you've come to church for the first time, I'll just tell you on the front side, this is going to be one of the tougher sermons you'll ever listen to because of all the culture and all the history that is between Jesus and the disciples. But almost all of you probably deal with things that are actually more difficult than this in your daily life. So when you feel your mind wandering, do your minds wander at any point while I teach? <laughs> it's okay, you can tell me the truth. My mind wanders while I teach. <laughs> Just re-engage, listen to Jesus, take Him seriously, and hopefully when we're done, you'll understand why we don't skip passages and why these difficult passages are actually very important. What's happening to Jesus today is He's been teaching at length about money. In Luke chapter 15, He told the parable of the prodigal son and told the religious crowd that anyone is welcome in the family of God, that the rule keepers like themselves are actually the ones who are most likely to end up outside of God's love, not because God is unwilling, but because they're self-righteous. 
and that the rebels, the notorious sinners who are coming around to hear Jesus are not only permitted, they're welcome and they're celebrated because they've repented and they're coming into the family of God. That's all in Luke 15. In Luke 16, and that's what we did last week, Jesus taught something radical and uncomfortable about money. He said that money should not be stored up here, it should be stored up in heaven. That if you tried to pile it all here together, you would miss true rewards. And that money, the money that God entrusts to you here, is actually a small thing. And if you want real life and real rewards, you will be very generous with everything God gives you on earth so that when you get to heaven, there will be some who are there to welcome you. Because through your influence and your faithfulness and your generosity, they made it to heaven themselves. Everybody that was here remember that? Well, the Pharisees are listening to all this saying, nonsense. And Luke, with psychological insight, tells you why they're mocking Jesus. What's the problem? They love money. If you love money, you're going to hate someone telling you to give it away. This is a criticism that pastors and churches often face. They only care about my money. And certainly, many pastors have earned that criticism because they live lives that are extravagant. They live so far above the lives of their congregation. They twist the Bible so badly, saying that if you give, God will give you piles and piles of money. That's not at all what the Bible says. It says only that God will provide, that He will not be in debt to you, that He will provide for you here on earth, and that by your generosity, you're actually going to store up great rewards in heaven. And that takes faith because you don't get to see and enjoy the rewards in heaven right here, right now. Does that make sense? Well, the Pharisees are listening to all this, and according to the passage, they're mocking Jesus. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at Him. And here He comes. And He told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others but God knows your hearts. Oh. He told the most particular, conscientious rule keepers in His time, many of whom knew the law and the prophets by heart, who were careful observers in their own view at least, of everything that Moses had commanded, Jesus told them that what they're actually doing is justifying themselves in the sight of who? Of other people. Here's the problem. God knows your hearts, for what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Well, that really made me pay attention this week because it made me ask this question, and this is what hopefully you'll do every time you read the Bible. You'll read it slowly. You'll take every word seriously. And when Jesus says that what the culture around you, what people around you admire is revolting to God, what that did to me was ask myself, how have I been discipled? How have I been influenced and molded into the shape of this world that makes me admire what people admire while God is disgusted? And that's kind of an ongoing question for me, actually. I'm sitting with that one with Jesus, asking Him to 
who, the one who knows hearts, to examine mine and to show me how I'm being discipled by the world around me. Because if you don't think you're being influenced around, by the world around you, oh, my friend, you're the worst and most vulnerable kind of student. You're the, not the worst, but the most vulnerable kind of student because you don't even realize what you're being taught and what you already believe. And this is a shocking thing for Jesus to say because these are the best people the whole culture has. And Jesus says, all you're doing in your apparent observance of the law is justifying yourself in the presence of other people who aren't as strict as you are. But here's what's really going on. God knows your heart He's not impressed by your outward deeds because He knows your heart, and the things that you value, He hates. He's revolted by. He's disgusted by. Wow. If the passage ended there, that'd be easy to preach. But it doesn't. Because Jesus is now going to tell them what the heart of the problem is, and here's where it gets very historical and very Jewish. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Now, which John might that be? Anybody care to guess? John the Baptist. Not John the disciple, John the Baptist. The law and the prophets, in other words, the Hebrew Scriptures were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed. Just sit with that for a second. Jesus is claiming to be a major turning point in God's salvation history. The law and the prophets which Jesus himself taught, those were until John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the person who came just ahead of Jesus, preaching repentance and telling people to get ready. And he said, I'm not the one. He's coming behind me. I'm not actually worthy to tie his shoes. I'm baptizing you in water. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is now going to review everything that God has done to that point. But don't miss it. He is making a sharp distinction in time. He's putting down a signpost between the law and the prophets and himself, it fits together like this. We have the law and the prophets in the 39 books of the Old Testament. As a hinge or a marker between them, we have John the Baptist, and after John the Baptist came Jesus. And as soon as G John the Baptist knew who Jesus was and was sure that this is the one, though he himself doubted it because of his own suffering, he said regarding himself and Jesus, he must increase, but I must what? Decrease. That's the point. If you're a football fan, John the Baptist is the lead blocker. Okay? If you're the lead blocker, you don't matter that much. Who matters? The guy with the ball. You get knocked over, Good, just get out of the way. That's all anybody rooting for your team wants. As soon as John saw Jesus, he said something extraordinary in John 1.29. He said, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
In other words, all that came up, bound up in the law of Moses, including the sacrificial and ceremonial system, is ending because God has not sent another prophet. He has not given another law. He has given His own Son, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1. And if you read the struggles and acts of these Jewish Christians struggling to understand and believe because they had a hard time believing it, that Gentiles were welcome into the kingdom as well, you can hear the tent or the truth that Jesus came for the whole world in John's simple pronouncement. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all the nations. All are going to be welcome, and Paul will later explain in Ephesians 2 that what Christ has done on the cross is tear down the wall of separation that was once between Jew and Gentile. So, Jesus is actually going to engage the criticism. That's what I want you to see. They're mocking and scoffing His teaching not because of the law, but because they actually love money. And Jesus is going to point to Himself as the authoritative person who actually understands what God wants. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, in other words, since I've come, because Jesus follows hard on John's heels, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is strongly urged to enter into it. And I, I understand this feels more like a classroom than a typical service. It's what this passage requires. I'd love for you to underline everyone is strongly urged to enter into it. And that phrase right there is the reason I printed the passage out rather than ask you to read it in your Bible that you happen to bring to church. Look in the Bible you happen to bring to church. If you didn't bring a church uh, Bible to church with you, take one of ours out of the pew and read that verse. Someone with a big, loud voice want to read it to us in the ESV, which we normally use? Just that verse? Everyone forces his way into it. Well, that's pretty different, isn't it? Why is that? Because Greek has this weird grammatical feature called voice, and both of the ways that you just heard that people are forcing their way into the kingdom of God or being urged strongly to enter into the kingdom of God, those are perfectly permissible translations because of the way Greek works. It's up to the translator to decide what is intended. I believe, as many of the footnotes in your Bibles will say, that this understanding that people are being strongly urged to enter into the kingdom of God is likely what was meant. It doesn't make that much of a difference. But in context, I think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't want you to miss the thread of the main point. Jesus has been criticized severely. He's been mocked by law keepers. And He said, you're way off. 
what you love, including your value, the value you put on money is actually detestable in God's sight because you've become very good at keeping the law externally. People admire you, but your hearts are very far from God. And this is what Jesus means in context, I believe. You think I'm a rogue teacher. You think I'm a lawbreaker. You think that I teach these things because I have no respect and no knowledge of the law. What is actually happening is something much better. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, since Jesus came, now the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone, including these sinners who were surprised to find themselves in the parable, Everyone is being strongly urged to enter into it, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. That's a really important phrase, and Jesus will expand on that in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, but I don't have the time. And if this feels like a classroom already, that would make it so much more, that would make it so much more challenging. I don't even want to go there. I just want to talk to you about Jesus and His relationship to the law and all that He has done for us. What we've established so far is this. In God's effort to reach the world, He made for Himself purely by His grace and His decision a group of people who were under those laws to represent Him. They were to be holy and separate unto God. They did not represent Him well because they actually behaved like the nations they were supposed to draw to Him. Make sense so far? Now, in God's determination, in His eternal plan to reach all the nations, He's done something entirely different. He has sent not more law and not another prophet, but actually someone to prepare the way for His own Son. And what His Son came to do was to preach that the kingdom of God was at hand. That's how Mark summarizes Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 1. Before Jesus called disciples to Himself, He went around saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Why is the kingdom of God at hand? Because the King is on earth. And it's not another messenger, it's not another lawgiver, it's not another lead blocker saying, he's going to come, Jesus is saying, I'm here. And the law doesn't change, and the law doesn't fail, and the law certainly isn't abolished, but Jesus is doing something quite different with the law. Here's how John explained it in his gospel. This is John the Baptist, this person between the law and the prophets and Jesus, John explained this regarding John the Baptist. John wrote, John testified concerning him, concerning Jesus, and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me has surpassed me because he existed before me. Did you catch that? Humanly speaking, who's older, Jesus or John the Baptist? John the Baptist is a few months older than Jesus. And John the Baptist says, when he sees Jesus, this is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me. In other words, the one I'm opening the path, the one I'm leading a block for, is greater than me. He has surpassed me because he existed before me. How can that be? John 1.14 says that the Word was made flesh. This is Jesus 
God, the Son of God, is now walking the earth. The kingdom of God is near because the king of all creation is actually walking among his creation. Then John the Apostle explains, indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Read the rest of it with me. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not opposed to the law. He's not going to abolish the law. He's actually going to explain it and fulfill it. Here's how Paul explained it in Romans 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does end mean here? Well, just like in Greek and in English, end in this case can mean two different things. Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the termination of the law. Which is it? I think it's both. I think the word is purposely chosen, as Luke is doing here, to show what has changed since Jesus has come. Because, and this is the great misunderstanding always regarding the law, the law and the prophets can do three things. They can point, they can prepare, and they can promise that salvation and a Savior is coming. And I'm going to show you that Jesus makes that claim for Himself and what He's struggling with right now with these religious law keepers is to convince them of this simple truth. I haven't come to abolish the law, I'm actually its fulfillment. The law and the prophets and the wisdom literature of the Psalms and the Proverbs as well, because it's referring to the entire Old Testament, it's all talking about me. It all points forward to me. It all prepares people's hearts for me. It promises that I'm coming, but what the law cannot do and never has been able to do is it cannot save. Are you aware that the law cannot save you? The law cannot give you righteousness. Anybody ever had a traffic ticket? All the traffic laws can do is show you the standard. It cannot compel you to keep them. What makes a good driver? A good heart. That sign that says 45 miles an hour cannot produce good drivers. It can only show who's keeping the law and who isn't. Who keeps the traffic law, by the way? Hmm. Let me put it to you this way. Would you be satisfied if we have the technology, and we do, to record every bit of data of your driving for the month of March, and then to deliver the entire data to the legal authorities, and you will be written a ticket for every violation. You like those terms? No. I'm a cautious driver because, well, it's a long story, but my wife will tell you I'm not the best driver, and there's historical reasons for that. So I account for the badness by being careful. But as careful as I was in thinking about this very idea I noticed on the way here, I was going 48 and a 45. Is that law-breaking? Am I going to get a ticket? Probably not, but 
but I could. Because I once unwittingly parked with about 30 other people in a place where parking was forbidden. An officer came up and without a word started writing a ticket in front of me. And I said, sir, I didn't know. We're all doing it. He said, that's true. Right now I'm dealing with you. (laughs) Because that's what the law does. Look at the way Paul explains it. Now, we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut. That's what that police officer did to me. He shut my mouth because he pointed to the sign that said parking is forbidden that I had not seen. I pointed to all the other lawbreakers, and he said, true, this is for you. And I didn't say another word, because I knew two things. He was right, and he was determined. And there was going to be no mercy, because the law holds up the standard of righteousness. It is incapable of giving mercy. The law cannot do that. Only the judge can do that. There are cases, if you're interested in which people entrusted with the enforcement of the law will let a thing go or dismiss it or the judge might in the interest of justice because they'll say, yes, something was broken, but in the larger picture, we're going to give mercy in this case. And God Himself is righteous. He gave a perfect and holy law because it expresses His character. And people worldwide, in all kinds of different settings, some calling themselves Christians, sometimes start taking law onto themselves, thinking that they can fulfill it. And they can't, because whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. I didn't know I was blowing it until the police officer started writing that ticket and pointed to the sign. Only at that moment did I know myself to be a lawbreaker. And like someone who has been tasked with enforcing parking, he was implacable. No budge, no give. The other people around me saw what was happening. Guess what they did? They drove off. Here's the thing with God. No one can drive off. It's already known. God is looking on the heart. He's not impressed with the rule-keeping because he knows that even among sincere people, it will always be imperfect. We will always come up short. The law cannot fail or change, but it also cannot save. It had to be fulfilled. And I skipped, well, I didn't skip, I just didn't read the rest of the passage. Look with me. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news, the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is strongly urged to enter into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to drop out. 
Jesus isn't opposed to the law. He's not abolishing the law. It cannot fail. It cannot change. It's an expression of God's character. The question is, to whom was the law of Israel given? It was given to Israel. And who can fulfill it? Care to guess? No one. That's why in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council meeting that I mentioned to you in the book of Acts, Jewish believers who were actually upset that Peter had entered into the house of the Gentiles to give him the gospel, because that's not at all what they had been taught. They thought that because of the law, they were to keep themselves separate. And Peter said he was saved the same way we are. And after a great deal of discussion in Acts chapter 15, this was the decision they made. We couldn't bear the yoke of that. They won't be able to do it either. We will be saved the same way they are by the grace of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus alone can fulfill the law. But I still haven't read the verse that might be troubling some of you. It's at the very end. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What? How does that fit? Well, this is one of the things that makes this passage difficult. Some of the additions in your Bible have a little heading that say additional teachings. And that's the editor saying, we don't know why this came up. We're just going to put this in a whole other category. What's going on here? Well, for those of you who are divorced, let me say this much. This is not all that Jesus said about divorce, and this is not all that the Bible says about divorce. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will teach more fully and say that divorce is permissible in the cases of infidelity. In 1 Corinthians, Paul will say that divorce is also permissible in cases of abandonment of those vows and abandonment of that person because, and here's the principle, God has not called us to bondage but to freedom. In other words, God recognizes the hardness of human hearts and how people can betray and hurt and abuse one another and has allowed a way of escape, a way of freedom for those who have been victimized. Make sense so far? So why is Jesus saying this in Luke's gospel, just punching the nose after all of this difficulty with the history? Well, there's two big rabbinical schools in Jesus' day. One is very strict and says only in cases of adultery. Very few people made an absolute prohibition. And there was another school, this is all taught by men, of course, that said, listen, if she burns lunch, you can divorce her. You think I'm kidding, but that was the standard. If a wife spoils a meal, you're tired of it. You don't want to see her anymore. Just send her on her way. So Jesus says, I'm so different. I'm so authoritative that I'm going to give you the real principle behind God's teaching. God hates divorce. And on this, everyone can agree. Everyone who has suffered through things that made them think of divorce, everyone who has ever gone through divorce, hates it. Am I right? A man I love who's not even a Christian told me 
as he shared with me that he was going to be divorced. Again, this is not a Christian. He said, I've gone through this once before. I can't believe it's happening again. I wouldn't wish what's about to happen to me, my wife, and my children on the worst enemy I have on earth. Why this hard teaching right at the end? Because Jesus is telling them that in the position of God Himself, He is the one who is allowed to interpret the law. And this is a heavy shot across their bow, reminding these self-righteous people how far they have strayed from God's intention and from God's heart, and how much they've been dedicated to justifying themselves in the presence of people, while God alone can see, what is it that God can see again? Your heart. So, what do we make of all this? We hear these simple words from Jesus, John 5, 39 and 40, spoken to the same crowd in a different setting. You pour over the Scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me, and you were not willing to come to me that you may have life. That's the trouble with legalism. That's the trouble with man-made rule-keeping. That's the trouble with man-made rule-keeping, even if it claims to be following the law that God Himself set down. It cannot save. And many people in the world will study the Scriptures very carefully and love the law and think that they are keeping it, and think that by their keeping they have become good enough for God, and in all their study and in all their scholarship they will miss the point and the purpose and the promise of the law. They will ignore the fact that the law was intended only to prepare their hearts for their Savior. Because no one ever could keep the law, and Abraham himself was saved before there was law, because Abraham lived hundreds of years before Moses did, and the Bible gives us this good news in Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as, do you know the rest of this verse? Righteousness. What did he do? He trusted God. Had all that God is been made clear to him? Did Abraham have a clear understanding of what God would do through the law and through the prophets? What John the Baptist would do as that lead blocker? Did he have a perfect understanding of who Jesus himself would be? No, not at all. He couldn't possibly have understood and known what you and I are privileged to understand and to know. We are so, so fortunate to live on this side of the cross. But God has saved people, men and women, sinners, both rebels and rule keepers alike, always in the same way, by simple repentance and trust in Him, because the Scriptures cannot save. They can only point. They can only prepare. They can only promise. It is Christ who saves. Listen to the sadness in the last verse. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Who gives life? Christ, not the law. So, what do we do with all this? Believe it or not, I'm done. Are you relieved? (laughs) Here's Here's what Luke has told us in this hard passage. Jesus has come and the good news is proclaimed now. And what God knows about people's hearts is the reason Jesus came to announce good news. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knows what's in people's hearts. That's why the Savior came. 
Because God knows what's in your heart. Don't miss that if you're not yet on the side of Christ, if you haven't trusted Christ. God knows everything about you and loves you still. But that will not restrain His judgment. The judge cannot ignore judgment. The the judge cannot ignore righteousness. Let me give you a simple illustration. If I were running for judge in a criminal court, here's my promise. Vote for me, they all go free. Would you, would you vote for me in? No. What do you want? You want righteousness. You want justice. If someone has been falsely accused, you want, them in a, you want them to walk. If they haven't done that much wrong, you want them correctly punished. If they've been gravely evil, you want all of justice and all of righteousness that the law allows to fall on them. You feel that way. Imagine how God must feel. God who knows every human heart, who sees every wicked deed, imagine how God must feel. This is why He came in the person of His Son. This is what gives us confidence and grace. This is why we live in the light of the gospel, not under the threat of the law. So what do we do with all this? Three simple ideas, and I actually am done. Only the good news of Jesus saves people. Jesus is the good news. He is the message. Second, being in God's kingdom changes your values. And if there's no change, you're not in the kingdom. That was the constant conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. They thought not only were they in the kingdom, they thought they represented the kingdom. And Jesus said, you haven't changed. Your exterior looks good. Your heart is far from God. That's why that verse made me sit up straight. It made me, again, as I have for years since I got serious about following Jesus, it made me sit up and ask myself, if I'm truly in the kingdom of God, how does that show up in the way I think? Not in the things I do when people are looking. Pretty easy to be a reasonable Christian while I'm preaching to you. Because you're all looking. God is looking at all times. And what He wants to know and what He values is whether in my heart, which will come out in my obedience, whether I'm in step with His Son who saved me. And thirdly, If you're in the kingdom, your mission now is to urge people to join you. That's why I think a proper translation of that verse is so important. It's not that people are forcing their way into the kingdom. In fact, many people, as we see in the verse itself, are denouncing the kingdom and denouncing the king. They're mocking the king. What should you do in response to people's reception of Jesus? You should urge them to come into the kingdom anyway. What if they make fun of you? Who cares? They made fun of Him. Do we really think we deserve better than Christ? He was mocked. So we need to announce the good news of the kingdom that no one ever under any regime has ever been saved by being good enough for God that you can't be. And that's why God sent His Son. And hear the frustration in the voice of Jesus. You pour over the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it is they that testify about me, and you will not come to me that you may have life. That's the invitation. If you don't have Christ, to turn to Him today. If you're already a disciple, be serious about God changing you. Not externally, that's easy. That's called hypocrisy. That's an easy deal, at least for a while. 
to ask God to change you, not in conformity to the law with threats, but through the love of His Son, because you love Him, you entrust yourself to Him, you're actually following Him, and along the way, you're urging as many people as you know to come join you. Let's pray. Could I give you just a moment? That was a lot to listen to, and I appreciate your attention. Could I give you just a moment to ask yourself if you're quite sure that you're in the kingdom? Hear Jesus saying, I'm different. I'm the final word. I don't disagree or abolish anything that was said before me or about me, but I'm the final and authoritative word. Have you trusted Him? Not a church, not a system, not a new set of rules. Have you trusted Christ? If you haven't, could I invite you to call out to Him for mercy? To tell Him that you're sorry. That's what the Bible calls repentance, a U-turn. A change of mind, a change of disposition that gives up on your efforts and trusts the effort of Jesus on your behalf. That recognizes yourself as someone in need of rescue and says to the Lord, I need and want you to rescue and teach and guide me you do that, call out to Him in prayer. He'll understand you. He knows what's in the heart, the self-righteous heart and the repentant heart. He knows every heart. You don't need the right words, the magic words. There are no such. Just call out to Him. And I would ask if you do that you'd find the card in your bulletin, drop it in a box on the way out. Let us know what you've done. God's been saving people week after week here. There'll be joy in heaven when you do. And if you're a disciple, think about the people around you. How long has it been since you urged someone in? Since you were willing to endure maybe a little mockery, maybe a little pushback or a little coldness when you started talking about Jesus? If you're in the kingdom, your job now is to urge people to come in. Father, make it so. Thank you, Lord, for the joy of teaching a group of people a passage as complicated as this one. What is true, Lord, in my explanation, may that remain and guide us. And most of all, Lord, thank you for the great truth that you, Jesus, have satisfied and fulfilled and you are the end of the law and you are God's righteousness for us. Help us invite, urge, pre plead, pray, do all we can to point to you so that people would come in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.